Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Jem Duduku, who is a historian who has turned his expertise to the world of Hollywood and cinema in a new book called Hollywood and History, What the Movies Get Wrong from the Ancient Greeks to Vietnam. It's a fascinating read full of factual information which takes aim at the cliches that we get so used to in in cinema and the thing is most people learn their history from films and culture and they learn about the world from films and culture so when films and culture replicate certain lies or certain fabrications or, or, or myths then it is extremely powerful if you enjoy the episode please remember to like to subscribe you can leave a review that really helps reviews are read by people uh, tell your friends you know, write them a letter, use carrier pigeon, semaphore, smoke signals, anything that works. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y, or what was formerly Twitter. And uh, and you do all that. But before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. But yeah, it's it's funny these uh, these um, online relationships. I got uh, there's quite a few. There's yourself, Kai Ross, who I've uh, sort of interacted with for a long time. Andy English, I interact with for ages, and then occasionally you meet you actually meet people. Sometimes I'm walking down 
I mean, it happens four or five times in Cannes this year that someone comes up to me and goes, oh, we follow each other on Twitter and we've talked on Twitter and stuff. And it's like, oh, great. Hi. I mean, I hope, I hope, hi. I hope, <laughs> <laughs> I hope uh, I, we haven't had any contretemps. Yeah, it's 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 the modern world. It's I, I I mean, obviously, you do a podcast. I do a podcast. So twenty five years ago, there was no way to perhaps uh, share this love other than through traditional media. So there is this kind of democratization. Obviously, it isn't quite as simple as that, but it's a brave new world out there. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to accentuate the positive, etc. As the song goes. Um, so I do like the fact that well, the people I was talking about, you know, Kai Ross has got. Um, a podcast about the prisoner that I listen to. You've got condensed histories that I listen to. So it's good to have those sort of conversations of those voices. Your podcast is very uh, snappily produced. I uh, It puts my sort of like taking out the occasional um and ah to shame. You know, you've got it. I mean, you really sort of use audio in a really interesting way. Well, that's Greg. It it, ah. it pays to have a producer. I mean, not that Greg actually I pay. We we do it together. But and I do like. I, you know, I'm a regular listener to yours, and it really amuses me when somebody says something off key and they go, "Oh, well, can you edit that out?" And you say, "Oh, yeah, yeah, sure." And and if you listen to it regularly, you know it's going to stay in. So I'm I'm aware of that. I'm going to I'm going to watch myself. Okay. All of this is going in. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, of course it is. None of this is none of this is getting edited out. So, I mean, when did you start the podcast? Um, probably nine years ago. And actually, before COVID, it was quite different. It was actually so. I met Greg like you online. We just right. we seem to have similar tastes, similar ideas. Uh, he his day job, if you like, is uh, he's an entertainer. Uh, sort of like he he used to do sort of a fun, silly reenactments of kids. He does magic shows, all kinds of, of, of things, but he's a live performer. Things like stately homes. If you sort of walk around, there's somebody standing there, I don't know, doing some juggling or something like that. That'll be Greg, or maybe it's Greg. And so we got talking and then we ended up uh, creating the podcast. And originally it was like, we'll pick a topic and we'll come at it from two different directions. And a lot of people were saying, it's like sitting in a pub, listening to two mates, having a chat, mm. which was exactly what we were going for. And then we, we just, changed the format after COVID. He kind of wanted to go, take a step behind for various reasons. And I said, oh, I still want to keep doing it. And he's constantly upped his game in terms of the editing side of things. That's certainly not what his background was. And yeah, he, it, the thing is though, as you know, you do the raw uh, audio and uh, and then you go back and carefully edit it. But if somebody else is editing it, you're not quite sure what they're going to do. And you mm. know, he, he sometimes puts, I, I make reference to a movie and he'll actually put in you know, the soundbite from the movie and it just really elevates the whole thing. So big shout out to Greg. My experience of that is restricted to, um, I do occasionally, I guest occasionally on The Economist's uh, podcast, The Intelligence, uh, which is a brilliant high production podcast. And and they basically will, I'll it'll usually be linked to an article I'll have written and they'll uh, prepare like a little script, but they'll say, don't read the script, just these are the talking points. And then they'll ask me some feeder questions, but I, I've got so used to it that I'll just ramble and then I'll listen to it back. And they've and they've just, as you say, they put in loads of great clips and loads of great sounds and stuff. And it just sounds like I know what I'm talking about. It's magic. <laughs> yes. Always make sure you keep the editor on the side because they can also make you look bad too. Where has this fascination come from with 
uh, you know, with history movies in particular, with that sort of because because your it seems to be your your subject of choice and the subject of your book is how Hollywood treats history. Well, the the reality is it's the same as everybody else. I grew up watching movies. Who doesn't? And when you're a little kid, watching something like Where Eagles Dare, which is an amazing, fun blockbuster type movie from the 1960s you're sitting there going well i know world war ii happened and and they seem to be wearing the right uniforms and you just take for granted that where eagles dare is as real as d-day and then when you're older you realize all made up none of that happened whatsoever and you know i'm sure we'll go into it but i think where eagles dare is an example of if you're a grown-up, you know at no point is it trying to re- replicate uh, moments from World War II, and therefore I will give it a pass. It's pure entertainment with a historical dress-up. Uh, but there are other times when movies start flashing dates up and things like that, and it looks like they've done their homework, and it's no more historically accurate than Where Eagles Dare. And I don't like those sorts of films because if and you have to read a history book to realize none of this happened or it didn't it didn't happen this way if you like so like everybody else i grew up watching movies and i'm one of the few people uh so for the overseas listeners uh, at 16 you have to take exams in britain they're called gcse's and i'm one of the last generations to actually have a gcse in medieval history so none of this modern rubbish now let's talk about William the Conqueror and stuff like that. So I've I've just always had a fascination with it. Uh, the th- the thing my my mother noticed that I had a thing for history because every time we went to the British Museum on like school trips, I would always come back with the same thing. It might be a jigsaw, it might be a puzzle, but it was always the Sutton Who helmet. And I still, anytime I'm at the British Museum, I always sort of pay my respects because I just think it's just such a fascinating item. It wasn't that like, it was used as a sort of beginning of a history program or something because i always I, that image or maybe it was discovered Quite possibly. while i was a kid but because that image is seared into my head of that of that helmet as being a you know a, a touchstone of when people talk about history that's one of the things i see that and stonehenge and you know yeah 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 so when you were talking about films which you know use history as a kind of playground to you know you're basically watching like bridgerton say you're watching modern day stories but dressed up in in period costume the films that you talk about that purport to tell the true story of what actually happened I, those are the ones that i particularly dislike not the ones that it, it's that sort of revisionist like um i remember um king arthur was filmed in a but this is the actual story and it was like this is no more the actual story than excalibur was the actual story yeah exactly so in, in the book, I uh, so um, I guess a uh, qu- quick plug to everybody. It's coming out in September. It's, you can pre-order it now. It's called Hollywood and History by Jem Daduchu, but they all have to have that subtitle, which is uh, what the what the movies get wrong from the ancient Greeks to Vietnam. So I do a broad brushstroke of history there. And of course, I can't put all the movies in it. But right at the beginning, I say there's there's sort of three types of movies that get it wrong for certain reasons. And the three mm. movies I, I pick are 300, you know, the Spartans movie, uh, uh, Braveheart and Hero, uh, the Chinese produced movie. And the reason why 300 gets it wrong is because it's based on a comic which was inspired by a 60s movie, which was inspired by real history. So that's a lot of filters. So the fact that in 300, you've got slow-mo, you've got literal monsters in it. Nobody can watch 300 and 
think, hmm, I'm watching a documentary. So it's it's wearing its its entertainment value on its sleeve if they wore sleeves. And it's got the, the surprising thing about 300 is the chain of events are at, is pretty accurate. Mm. But it didn't look like that. The motivations were very different, so on and so forth. And, you know, it's problematic in all kinds of reasons, but so were the Spartans. So that's one which that sort of movie I'll give a pass, like Gladiator mm. as well. But right. then Braveheart is the one that I is a classic example of one that I and many other historians have taken real issues with. And talking to to Greg about this, he made the very valid point that it was made in the late 1990s, just before the internet. And so if Braveheart was made today, there would be so many reaction videos to it going, well, this is what the real history was, that Braveheart would never have been nominated for Oscars. And, and this is the thing, it's it, it, it won Oscars. It was seen as a prestige project at the time. And I'm not, again, I'm not taking anything away from it. If it was set on Tatooine, you would just say, this is a great movie. You know, it's got goodies, it's got baddies, a ragtag bunch of rebels against an evil uh, king. All of that works perfectly in the storytelling uh, character arcs and narrative structure. Perfect. No notes. But the first thing it flashes up is Scotland 1280. And you see that Scotland's been taken over by the English. And it's like, well, that's news to me because the, the Scottish king in 1280, Alexander III, was still alive. You know, it would have cost them no money whatsoever to have put something like 1285, for example. So... Instantly, from a historical perspective, it's like you've, you've this is totally wrong. And everything in the movie is wrong. Everything. And the few things that actually happened in history that are portrayed in the movie didn't happen like that. For example, the first battle, which was which was really a genuine um, victory for the Scottish against the English, uh, the Battle of Stirling Bridge is in the middle of a field. The clever thing about it was the Scottish allowed part of the much larger English army to go across the narrow Stirling Bridge and then attack them while they were out of order and most of their forces were on the wrong side of the river. This, this is a sign of how intelligent and smart the Scottish forces were. But according to Mel Gibson, it was about who could do the most shoving in the middle of a field whilst wearing a kilt, which I feel obliged to say didn't exist in the 1200s. So, um, you know, so that one, it's just like, it's it's trying to be a prestige project, but it's just as cartoony as the first. And then the third one, something like Hero. And Hero was a really interesting one for me because I walked out of Hero. It's one of the most beautiful uh, movies I think you're ever going to see. And um, I knew vaguely about the first emperor of China and there was an assassination, quite a famous assassination attempt by a musician who, and I love this, it's just this one line in the Chronicles which said he was attacked with a weaponized lute. How the lute, the musical instrument, was weaponized, we don't know, but he, he was tooled up. That's it. So, you know, like three lines from a, a chronicle from over 2000 years ago is extrapolated into a movie. It is a gorgeous movie, amazing wuxia, martial arts, all this stuff, tick, 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 tick. But I walked out of the movie going, it, the clearly the message in this is China needs a strong leader because, spoiler for the end of Hero, the assassin's about to get the emperor and the emperor goes, well, no, if I die, everything goes to chaos. So you need me to, to keep everybody working. And it doesn't take a genius to work out that this is clearly a dotted line to the communist Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist uh, Party and like you need strong leaders to keep uh, China from sliding into chaos. But when it first came out, everybody, including The Guardian, was kind of 
so enamored by the visuals, nobody spotted the rather unsavory politics. And it took months for the Western media to go, um, hang on. So, you know, you do get this political interference, you know, not just in, in, in Chinese stuff, but, you know, all countries at certain times in their history have had governmental political movies. Uh, and uh, one that I give an example of is Henry V was filmed uh, by Laurence Olivier during World War II. Now, Henry V was fighting the French in France, but it was very much repurposed to imply we're going back to France to beat the Germans this time round. Uh, interestingly, they had to film it in Ireland because they needed lots of young men and England was kind of shy of them and Ireland was uh, was neutral in World War II. So, so yeah, so I'd say that those are the three types of, you can pretty much take any historical movie and drop them into any of those three areas. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, one thing that strikes me as well is how the creators, how important the creators are in in that, you know, I mean, how important contemporary reality is in, when you're looking at something in the past. So with Frank Miller having, and Zack Snyder having 300, Frank Miller is a very, is quite outspoken in his right-wing sort of views. And, and like, for instance, one of the things that I found uh, I mean, one of the things that drama does to history is it renders lots of people invisible, you know? Oh, and, hugely, yeah. And so all the, the you know, the 300 counts, the 300 warriors, but not the auxiliaries who were slaves. So there were actually, you know, several hundred people behind the 300 who were, you know, facilitating their them being uh, part of it, but just weren't counted because as far as the Spartans were concerned, they weren't human beings. Well, uh, absolutely. And to, to add to that and sort of reinforce it from a historical perspective, um, I don't know if you're aware of this or your listeners are, but there is this conversation, this almost sort of philosophical conversation about history, saying that really uh, history is to understand really big impacts to history. It's social history. Mm. It's the slow changes of things like uh, agriculture, civilization, education. And these are all really important. And that's considered uh, left wing history. And then right wing history is great man history. So you have somebody fighting a battle or conquering a thing. And we focus in on that individual. And actually, it's very, very rare that a battle changes anything, really. The amount of time, if you just go onto Wikipedia, you'll read sort of like decisive battle, and then you realize three months later there was another decisive battle. Well, it couldn't have been very decisive if they're still fighting, for example. <laughs> so, um, but the interesting thing is, whereas Hollywood, we can say, is quite liberal in its outlook, it's quite right-wing with the history because they like a, a great man in inverted commas. And the reality is... You will you will never get a blockbuster. I mean, Oppenheimer is probably the closest you can get to this, but nobody is going to make a three hour epic of Karl Marx writing Das Kapital. You know, no matter how important it was for 19th and 20th century history, there's nothing there's, nobody's going to sit there and watch that. Well, I mean, the three people who do are the ones who buy the socialist worker anyway. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it, you're not going to make your money back on that one. Um, and which is why I give sort of 10 out of 10 to Oppenheimer. It's a shame it came out after the, the book was uh, published that, you know, Nolan managed to convince millions of people to go and watch a three hour talky thing with some pretty complex math, uh, mathematics and physics in it as well. And I'm so happy about that because it, it was, it's been a while. And I'm sorry to go off on a tangent here, John, but uh, I, no, I, no, I, I, love I find you. this I love really you interesting. <laughs> so 
there's been this big conversation about what's happening to the Oscars. How can we make the Oscars relevant again? Right. And I, I really think uh, that I, I watched this really well-researched um, video on, on YouTube, actually, saying, well, if, look at the 1970s and you get something like The Godfather, which, and, and this is another thing, the gangster movies usually are historical epics, but we don't call them that. The Godfather came out in in nineteen seventies, and it's about the nineteen forties. It's about the the men returning home for after World War Two. That is a different generation. Mm. Uh, you know, they are wearing costumes. We don't call it a costume drama, but that's exactly what it is. China so, but the thing is, well. it, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it, it is interesting how how much history is put on the screen almost by stealth. Uh, it's like, no, really, it is history. But anyway, um, but the thing is, Godfather uh, cleaned up at the Oscars, but also cleaned up at the box office. So anybody tuning in to see the Oscars in that year had seen it. But then fast forward 40 years and you get something like The Shape of Water, which is a good film, but I think it grossed in the American box office something like $30 million. Nobody went to see it. And so we need some, you know, Gladiator is probably the last time you have a lot. It, it earned a lot of money. It got a lot of prestige and it won a load of of, um, of golden statues. So I hope that Oppenheimer pulls off the same thing because it's a reminder that we are kind of fed up of super. I like a good superhero movie, but there's an awful lot of bad superhero movies out, out at the moment. And. You know, what Oppenheimer proves is people are willing to look at intelligent adult drama. But a lot of that has now been turned into miniseries on Netflix or HBO or what have you. So, you know, that that's the problem there. But hopefully we're going to start seeing, is this a quirk or, or is this a bit of a return trend? I, I'm hopeful for the Napoleon movie, you know, Ridley Scott. Um, Very hopeful. But, you know, but I, but I also happen to know that the Joaquin Phoenix is the same age, roughly, as Napoleon at Waterloo. So showing, you know, the problem with the actor is he can't change his age. So seeing him in 1793, it's like, mate, you are way too old. You are decades too old to be playing Napoleon at that point. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm I'm not going to worry too much about that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only so much you can do. Yeah, exactly. But I am going to push back on a, on another point, which was your idea yeah. of no one's going to do a three-hour movie about you know deconstructing the big man other than sort of Nolan with Oppenheimer, David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, oh, uh, absolutely. But of course, that was back at the time when this stuff was big money. Uh, I'm talking about now. So, but yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, because that concept that Hollywood per se won't um i mean because i it's it's like almost uh yeah let's let's bring in the big guns it's almost like uh shakespeare has this problem where it's like i'm fascinated by kings and and the terrible things they do but it, i mean is drama authoritarian in the sense is is drama always looking for one simplistic character that i can follow rather than looking at the complexity and nuances of vast social movements uh, you know like coriolanus is is i i think almost like a debate of that 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 it, it's like can i can i look at this in a more democratic way i mean i'm not claiming that william shakespeare was necessarily democratic i kind of think he was but not in a way, I don't mean it in a sort of parliamentary political way. I mean it in a sort of he wanted to hear all the voices. Um, is there something, you know, about drama that just drives us towards tyrants? 
think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, you need for a good story, you need a beginning, middle and end and you need to hook it onto somebody. So that central character either is the person who beats the tyrant or becomes the tyrant godfather for example <laughs> and 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 so and and that's if you like that is that you've hit on the fundamental problem of any time people do something about history it needs to have a beginning middle end a character arc a rise and fall the second uh, the second act challenge all that kind of good stuff and that makes a great drama that is not how life works ever you know people are like everybody's life is messy and and inconsequential and and i mean the other thing just to really boil it up as well is i've heard you talk about this before social media isn't the real world it's a heightened reality both on the left and on the right as well but the amount of times i'm seeing people having hot takes about history and the problem is hopefully everybody would agree overall again there's always exceptions to this stuff but overall if you look at the last 150 years particularly in the west things have become more inclusive, more democratic, more reasonable. 150 years ago, women couldn't vote. Now, around the world, there's been multiple national leaders who are women. You know, 150 years ago in Britain, you would have been arrested and put in prison for being gay. You can now get married. And so you, hopefully we can see that there is a progression of social justice as we moved through time. But of course, with history, we're going the other way. So just sort of turning around and saying, oh, Napoleon was racist. Yeah, but everybody was in 1800. And that's not what he's famous for. His racism is not what defined his story. Or you get people going, well, you do know that George Washington had slaves. Again, yeah, everybody did back then. So it's it's like um, sort of big, there is a generation who are so willing to take the hot takes and to be so reductive that there's a part of me worried that, that, that history works on nuance. And let's take... a. Uh, sort of sacred cow in Britain, you know, um, uh, Winston Churchill. You know, uh, if you want to create a an argument that this was a right-wing imperialist uh, racist, um, that's there, you know, that's yeah. absolutely there. But if you want to talk about the man who saved Britain from invasion and galvanized a defeated country, that's there too. Uh, you know, this is the man who lost a general election in 1945 to the Labour Party. It's, and he did feel, and I, I hear where he's coming from, it's like, just won you a war. What more? What more can I do for you guys? But also, people were waiting. Were wanted a peacetime leader, not a wartime leader. So, the thing about history, if you ask any historian, they're going to say the same thing on any topic. It's more complicated than that. But if you got two hours, you can't get complicated. He's bad. She's good. And and there's a big battle at the end. Yeah, and there's a certain glamour as well that comes with uh, with just the fact that it's a movie star playing the the role. You know, you just you you give. Uh, you know, there's a song by uh, Bongwater that says it's easy to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior when he looks like Willem Dafoe. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's necessarily a history film, but it kind of is. Um, uh, I mean, that's the thing. You know, Jim Caviezel. Is playing a historic character right now in a film, or a contemporary character actually, in in a film that uh, you know the the Sound of Freedom, I think it's called Sound of Freedom, yeah. And it's it, you know he he brings his good looks to the part and his bonkers ideas, um, but the same is true of of uh, you know so many so many characters where where you're thinking you look yeah I mean you can list the 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 actors who have played 
Adolf Hitler, and they're pretty much all much more handsome than Adolf Hitler ever was in reality. Well, I, I absolutely hear you. The one that popped into my head at that point was, um, of course, we've got Cleopatra. Yeah, and and of course, you know, uh, she's she's the big beauty. She's one of the most famous queens of, although technically a pharaoh of history. And you've had multiple, largely white women playing Cleopatra. Now, recently on Netflix, they've had a black woman play it, and we, that, all historians and Egypt agree she wasn't black. But anyway, that's that's the different thing. But you know, today you would at the very least get an Egyptian woman. To, to play her, mm. uh, and so um, and yeah, I mean, Henry the uh, A lot of them are a lot fitter than the the, the real guy. So of, of course, these are Hollywood uh, heroes with perfect skin and perfect teeth, and uh, nobody has. I, I love this fact. Uh, it was Julius Caesar who invented the comb over. Uh, and <laughs> no way, Ch Cherry Nuttall should play him. <laughs> yeah, so, so. And also, you know the um, the the laurels you see uh, resting on his head. Uh huh. Though before him, they were round his neck. So again, he had that round his to sort of hide his widow's peak. So oh. this is this is all. Um, but you don't tend to get hugely balding men playing Julius Caesar. They all have luscious heads of hair. So uh, you know it's. Of course, you to be to be completely historically accurate is folly. Okay, so mm -hmm. uh, the the one thing again going back to Mel Gibson um, uh, with with Passion of the Christ is he he did it all in Aramaic, a dead language. Same with Apocalypto. So you know, if we were going to do Henry V, we wouldn't do it in Shakespearean language. We would do it in Chaucer -like English, uh, and that and everybody would be sitting there going, "What?" Because we don't talk even remotely like Chaucer did, uh, and nowadays. So, you know, how realistic can you make it? The chance, the, the answer is, it's always folly. It's like trying to film inside a medieval castle with only candles. You need to go back to Stanley Kubrick and uh, Barry Lyndon, where he nicked those uh, NASA lenses because they could film in in low light. It's like, well, not everybody has those NASA lenses, so. It, it, it's almost like you're on a fool's errand to make it completely historically accurate. But what's your angle? What's your agenda is something that I would always like to know. And um, th the thing that I sort of spoiler, if you like. So uh, I this has ended up with an American publisher. This is the first time. Spoiler for the book or spoiler for a film? Spoiler for the book. So oh, spoiler okay, for the okay. book. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, vaguely spoiler for films, but it, it's, it's fine. Um I, I wrote the book um, and uh, presented it to them, and they said, you need to have uh, a chapter on civil rights history movies. Mm. And I said, I'm a white guy in England. I don't feel particularly comfortable. And they basically said, it would look worse if you didn't. Right. So I sat down and and watched a whole bunch of, of movies there. And I'm glad I did, because the spoiler is, the most historically accurate movies in the book. It, you know, it isn't the ancient world. It isn't medieval world. It isn't World War II. It's these uh, movies about the civil rights movement. And I think not all of them. But not uh, Mississippi but Burning, surely. No, it, or, yeah, Mississippi Burning's in it. Um, right. And also uh, so's uh, Hidden Figures as well in, in, in the thing. But if you look at things like Judas and the Black Messiah, mm. if you look at uh, Detroit, uh, if you look at uh, Selma or Black Klansman, the difference between all of those movies and anything else in the book 
is that apart from Detroit, these are made by black filmmakers. There is an, uh, I mean, yes, okay, it's within living memory, but also there is an earnestness there. There's a, a real feeling that we 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 owe it to people to get it right. Whereas in the case of Gladiator, it's like, let's have fun. And, and at no point do they ever do that in that area. And therefore it does create this whole genre of, of really historically accurate movies. And I couldn't believe it when I was doing the research, but Selma, which came out in 2014, is the first Hollywood movie to be a biopic about Martin Luther King. That was so what? counter. Yeah, yeah. It was so counterintuitive. I treble checked it. It's like, has there not been? No, there has never been a historical. There's been lots of documentaries about the man, and there's been some very low budget sort of like art house films. But Hollywood has never thought to give him the sort of the Lawrence of Arabia treatment before. Creepers, creepers. That's so. That's so astonishing. I mean. The closest you have to that is obviously Malcolm X by Spike Lee. And I remember yep. uh, during an interview, Spike Lee gave, there was a, there's a line that Danny Aiello says, he's a, plays a police chief and, and uh, he's arrested uh, Malcolm X. And they say, sort of look out the window and there's a whole line of people and he releases Malcolm X because, of, you know, to avoid any further thing. And he says the line, no man should have that amount of power. In And Spike Lee said... I wanted him to say no black man should have that amount of power, but that's not what he said. He said no man should have that power. So that's what I stuck to. And I just thought it was really interesting that Spike Lee was, was holding himself to that degree of, you know, cause it would have been easy, you know, how, who, who's going to say, of course. who's going to say anything. And it would have tracked. It almost sounds a little bit unusual that he doesn't say no black man should have that power. But it's he says nope. But that's what he said. So that's what that's what the script says, and that's what Daniel Yellow says. And I, I think that also with the um, the civil rights movies, and also when we go into Vietnam as well, I've got to, that's the last chapter of the book. Is I think again that's one of the strengths of America in the sense that they are happy to spend millions and generate millions showing the bad side of their society. Mm. Yeah, you know, whenever we start um, talking about beautiful films from China or Iran or something like that, these are uh, governments that will never create uh, their version of Platoon or Judas and the Black Messiah. According to them, their society is hunky-dory, they have won every war, and uh, all their men are brave, etc., etc. And it's like, well, of course they were brave in certain circumstances, but I find it so heartening that in the West, we're willing to really pick over um, the dark side of our history. You know, 12 Years a Slave and, and other things as well. Um, you know, you, you've got Peterloo uh, in, in Britain. I, again, I just, if you were to make the equivalent of Peterloo in Russia right now, you're going to prison, simple as that. So uh, I, I, you know, I take my hat off to all of these harder watches. I mean, if you like, the one cr criticism I have of the, the civil rights uh, movies is almost none of them end happily ever after okay they are exhausting and draining and quite frankly sitting there sitting there watching one after another you do you sort of stare at your finger <laughs> not, yeah what's the point uh you know i would like something a bit uplifting and indeed in that chapter i finish with the woman king and point out it's the least historically accurate of any of these other films but it's like it's like over 20 years they've earned the right to now have a black braveheart yeah. in essence and and you know this one is clearly let's have fun with it and obviously the fact that it's you know it, it's a, a a 
uh, a cast of African Americans. There's a there's a sort of like uh, sort of lesbian subplot in one of them. These are obviously very modern. But if you if you just made everybody if you ran the same plot, had the same scenes, but made everybody white, this could have been out in 1965. You know, it's yeah. actually quite an old fashioned traditional movie, and I, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You should be able to have fun with stuff as well as you know, get, getting away from a, a sort of ghetto of as you say, sort of earnestness, because that's what, you know, that's what every, it's a little bit like um, there was a period where every gay film had to be tortured. You, you couldn't yeah. have someone just being happy, like like in Bros, you know, which it has its own anxieties, but, but isn't Brokeback Mountain, let's say. One of the other things that I wanted to bring up in terms of what you were just saying about how, you know, it relates to a, a similar similar idea where, things matter and people have to get it right there's a sort of moral imperative to get it right is looking at the holocaust because when you look at where mm -hmm. eagles there mm -hmm. you can just have fun with it and, and no one really gives a damn and it's clint eastwood firing a machine gun around the corner that's the stuff you remember but when it comes to uh schindler's list and life is beautiful the diary of Anne frank the pianist old books that you feature then the the stakes are considerably higher what what's your take on on that in terms of how realistic those films are and and how realistic those films have to be? Well, I I, I think you made the point yourself. We are in the same territory as those um, sort of uh, civil rights movement type movies. To do anything other than get it right would be a gross disservice. I mean, I'm trying to find the word. I, I think a movie that that plays fast and loose with with um, the, the Holocaust probably would be something that might end up being banned. You know, there would be a movement mm. against it and I would be completely 100% with it. I, again, you know, a, a lot of these movies um, I, I hadn't seen for ages and watched again or went back to, or I thought I knew knew really, really well. So I just wrote about it, something like Braveheart. I kind of know like the back of my hand, but uh, <laughs> going back, you know, Schindler's List is not something that you think, hey, it's Saturday night, let's get a pizza and watch Schindler's List. And my uh, youngest son also really wanted to see it. His goal is to see, I think, the top 50 of the IMDb top, uh, you know, they got the two, 250 and he wants to see as many of those as possible. Yeah. And he goes, I still haven't seen Schindler's List. And it's in the top 10. It's like, kid, you know, uh, unlike other heavy dramas, all of this happened. And you just sit there and you realize, uh, uh, and I remember the interview that, that Spielberg uh, made going, you cannot show the whole Holocaust. It's just so overwhelming. It's unfilmable. So he said, I put the Holocaust on one side of a wall. I put the viewer on the other side of the wall and I drilled a hole and you can peek through. And watching it again, I think the real genius of it is it's watchable. It is not overwhelming. It is harrowing. It is terrible in places, but there are also breathing points as well. And again, Ray Fiennes, you know, he could have just been a cackling madman and that would have fit, it fitted, but he made him at some times almost pathetic. And it's just a fascinating, it's one of the best character studies I've ever seen. Please, I in no way, uh, you know, like the guy, but it, it was, you know, he played it with... 400 layers of subtlety and subtext and it was all the more remarkable for it so of course tommy lee jones wins the oscar for the fugitive instead <laughs> well they're never going to give an oscar to a nazi <laughs> you know the oscars are about aspiration they're about what we want to see ourselves as rather than what we actually are i mean i think you're absolutely right and it's interesting that ray finds obviously directs a version of coriolanus which, yes, again, yes. which again is that going back to that problem of how do we 
not glamorize something simply by the fact of making it making the spectacle out here and i agree with you i think the um uh, all of the I mean, who was i talking i was talking to someone recently and they told me that one of the when the, all the people the actual survivors the actual eyewitnesses the one thing they all said about um I think it was Joseph McBride might have made this point. The one thing they said was Ray Fiennes was too handsome as uh, Gert. That's right. Yes. Yes. He, he was, he was an ab- abhorrent, you know, he's a really horrible looking guy. And, and as much as they uglied Fiennes up, they couldn't, you know, as fat as his belly was and all the rest of it, he, they couldn't make him as gross as the guy actually was. Um, I think you'll be really interested in um, Jonathan Glazer's uh, zone of interest. Because I think it, in many ways, is a film which is not just about the Holocaust, but is also about how we look at the Holocaust. And I think it will make other Holocaust movies seem pretty small by comparison and pretty um, conventional by comparison uh, in a way which is not good. Which is, which, I mean, which is good for the zone of interest and uh, not necessarily. You know, I mean, it's a little bit like when Saving Private Ryan came out and it was like, okay, every war movie now has to compare to Saving Private Ryan. Um, I think the the same will. I mean, I have a real bugbear with Life is Beautiful. I love Roberto Benigni. I think he's um, a a wonderful comic talent. His early films are are brilliant, are beautiful. And I loved Life is Beautiful when I first watched it, but I've been working in the Italian education system and it's, it's a regular rewatch on the day of uh the you know the day of remembrance for the holocaust holocaust day and i think it's the worst possible example of a holocaust movie because it's about forgetting the holocaust it's about not seeing the holocaust it's about pretending the holocaust didn't happen to to protect your child and you know okay so why are we doing remembrance day in schools then uh, look i hear you i think that where it turns into an interesting conversation is getting kids into these big subjects. So everything you've just said from an adult's perspective, yeah, 100%, go watch The Pianist instead. But, you know, you've got to get the kids in there. And if it isn't that, it's the boy in the uh, striped pyjamas, get that one right. And in Britain, when they're explaining uh, World War I, they'll invariably use Blackadder. Now, Blackadder, Mm. Blackadder 4, was a comedy. It was never meant to be used in history classes. They get everything wrong in Blackadder 4. Now, I love Blackadder. It's hilarious. But the point is, if at least it gets the kids starting to look at the subject, it is then the teacher's job to say, okay, that was fun, wasn't it, kids? Now let's tell you what actually happened. But what I'm seeing a lot of is like, okay, we've now done World War One. It's like, no, you haven't. They didn't spend all their time in trenches, for God's sake. Uh, anyway, yeah, so that's a whole other thing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hear you. And, and if you like, this is... I guess, going back to the podcast with condensed histories, I've Mm. had some people say, look, you clearly know the history. Why are you starting with pop culture? It's like, well, I'm trying to get people into it because if, if I do uh, an episode just on the crusades, that's going to turn off so many people. But if I start off with a, a thing like a movie, like, um, uh, the last kingdom uh then um you know that sort of like gets people in and then i sort of get, i sort of sneak it in and then i almost 
gaslight them with the history uh, at, at the back end of whatever whatever's on that particular episode. And and I think that that's really important. And that's the argument that a lot of filmmakers make as well. It's like, oh, this is a great starting point, but they don't believe it. They're just mm-hmm. there. I mean, you get the the earnest ones like Spielberg with Schindler's List and, uh, you know, Nolan with Oppenheimer. But, you know, the vast majority of them, it's like, I, I just want bums on seats i just want to sell tickets uh, maybe get a golden thingy uh, for uh, attached to it and play fast and play to the crowd and it's like do you know what a lot of history is quite challenging and because all history is about human beings the i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The reason why World War II, it seems to me, is so popular is because we can all agree the Nazis were bad. Mm. Uh, and if if you say that they've got a point, I'm going to say uh, we need to have a conversation. But anyway, um, so, but almost everything else, it's like, well, it's complicated. It's from different people's perspective. Uh, you know, Edward I, who is the bad guy in Braveheart, one of his other names, apart from Hammer of the Scots, was the flower of chivalry because he was seen as such a great diplomat around Europe. And before everything went wrong in Scotland, he came up with a really good idea to heal Scotland. It just didn't work. And so, you know, it's like with everybody, I, I just hate it when people turn it into black and white because it is very rare in history to find anybody who's an out and out hero and it's very rare in history to find somebody who's an out and out villain and and actually doing these character studies can be really interesting if they're done well but most people are are more interested in a big battle a big epic love uh, love triangle with the i don't know the u.s civil war as a background to it or something like that and 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 you know a screenwriter wants to write a good drama they don't want to do a documentary on the taiping rebellion in china yeah i mean uh, that's what i find interesting about someone like christopher nolan because i really do feel he's someone who's who 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 is much more i mean he's got his flaws i'm not he's oh yeah he's he's got his recurring themes that he he seems to come back again i mean for instance his version of the great man of history it seems to be the idea of the big lie that people can't know the truth there has to be one big lie that governments and everybody covers you know i you know i have to live as a villain in order to be a hero sort of thing with batman but also you know i was gonna say you're the first person to compare bruce wayne to robert oppenheimer well done well done you but, but i think he's a similar figure i think it, his I, figure, I, I hear you i hear you insomnia it's all about a, a cop who made a yeah. lie and all of his all of his cases will be thrown out if it's discovered um, you know, and so it's it's all about making one bad lie so that everything else, you know, uh, yeah, mo- the moral 
it's it's a it's it's a weird obsession he has but he feels like you know dunkirk the end of dunkirk what how did the guy die oh he was brave he died you know an act of bravery no he died in stupidity an act of you know he's knocked over but it was an accident you know um you create the myth well on Um, that point i'll never i i I hear i just have to interrupt for a moment Uh, a friend of mine who very pithy guy um during uh, Britain's uh, fighting in Afghanistan, um, pretty much every evening there was coverage of it. And, you know, sadly, another serviceman had died. And you quite often got uh, reports from like their fellow servicemen talking about how great they were. And my friend just went, why have no assholes died in Afghanistan? Uh, and, and you know, it's because once they're dead, they're all heroes. OK, but yeah. maybe that guy just before he died was just just the worst person, you know, sexist, racist. He was mucking around with a hand grenade and then he got shot. And it's all sort of like, well, so, you know, that, you know, he was asking for it, but you can't say that to his mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got I got blocked once from um, I mean, this is in the very, very early days of Twitter. And and he was Nick Frost was sort of, you know, um, tweeting something about all heroes, all our, you know, support our servicemen, everyone's heroes. And I was like, every, every single one of them, because I've met some squaddies. I know some guys that were in the army and, you know, uh, there's, there's kind of, you know, meh, there's a mix, you know, and he blocked me instantly because that kind of. Um, you know, and I kind of th- thinking back at that, as I say, it was the early days of the internet. I wouldn't send that kind. Of, you know, there's no point sending that sort of provocation yeah, yeah, these yeah. days. So it's like, uh, but let, let's let's talk about the the war, the other war. You, you know, you talk about the good war in terms of the Second World War and why it's so popular because of the you know the the well the good war, the Steve Ambrose idea of uh, who who yeah who really sort of. Uh, this second wave of Second World War movies that he was a real influence on. But looking at uh, Vietnam, which was a, a, a war that Hollywood for a long time, you know, with the exception of Green Beret and a fairly unwatchable film, The Green Berets, by the way, and uh, Apocalypse Now, didn't want to handle, didn't want to look at. Yeah. So, I mean, it took about 10 years for uh, for the studios to start seriously looking at it. But although what was interesting is, you know, during my research, uh, there was the the theory that uh, Apocalypse Now took so long to get rolling, but before we even get to, to the epic actual filming in the Philippines, uh, that there was a, a theory that, hey, maybe we could film it during the actual Vietnam War, which is an insane idea. I mean, you just cannot control a war. Uh, they're, they're dangerous for a reason, notoriously so. Um, and also, you get <laughs> the all, clue all in the, the name. War. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I believe there was a song about it too. But anyway, and then with um, with Platoon, it had been kicking around for years. And But what was interesting for me was that Oliver Stone had won an Oscar for, I've now just instantly forgotten Midnight the name Express. of the prison drama. Thank you. Midnight Express. And then he does a dumb horror movie with Michael Caine where the hand and it's sort of like, where, where, why did you go from something so gritty? And then, of course, you're going to have Salvador and then Platoon. And it's like in the middle of that, there's this terrible Michael Caine horror movie. What? Uh, but hey, I, I hear he was doing a lot of drugs in the early 80s. So that might explain a lot. A but lot but Platoon was 
yeah yeah but platoon was so influential with this whole boot camp thing for the uh for the young actors and you know so that, that became just the standard thing to do you know by the time 10 years later plus you get to saving private run they do exactly the same thing they're still using dale die as as the main uh, main military uh, expert in that situation even though obviously he fought in vietnam rather than world war Two. so and of course the thing about Hollywood or any industry is once there's money, people go for it. So you get this slew of some good, some not so good Vietnam films in the in the late 1980s. You know, it starts with Platoon. It's got Full Metal Jacket, another classic. You got Hamburger Hill. Uh, you know, so th there are yeah, and, and many, many more. Bat 21, I seem to remember. Um, and of course, technically, uh, First Blood Part, uh, sorry, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Right, uh, which right. is almost a nonsensical uh, sentence there. Uh, but hey, that was a movie and a big hit. And of course, the classic line in that movie uh, for those for those three people who don't know what that was. So John Rambo is a Vietnam veteran. He comes back, and the first movie, First Blood, is actually a relatively thoughtful for a time. Uh, you know, look at the way we treated the Vietnam veterans when they came back from Vietnam. That had something to say. Um, but in the second one, he goes back to Vietnam to get some of these prisoners of war that the evil Vietnamese have sort of still got for some unknown reason. And there's the classic line that the Americans just loved when that film came out, was, which was, do we get to win this time? Uh, as if, you know, America hadn't tried in the 1960s and 1970s to win the Vietnam War. Um, but, you know, the Vietnam still continues today. You know, there are there are less movies about it, but it does still defy bloods, you know, and another one there which you could kind of put into the uh, sort of like the social, the black social history element as well. So, you know, it's, it, as, as I've already said, it, it's great to see such condemnation of uh, of the American experience in Vietnam. Uh, again, sort of bringing my family into it, my eldest son, I showed him Platoon. I went, I think, I think you need to see this film. And what, during the village scene, he just shouted out in disgust, this is not an army, this is a rabble. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that 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 was the problem. And my my uncle served in Vietnam. And uh, I sat oh down God. and, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm half American. And, um, you know, so I've talked to him about the Vietnam um, experience and he we we sat and watched together full metal jacket and i said at the end of it what did you think and he said there wasn't enough swearing it's like wow okay seeing it's seeing it's wall to wall okay fine uh but i then said so what's the most accurate portrayal and he goes apocalypse now he, he goes it, it isn't actually about any one battle or anything like that but it but if you want to know the sheer insanity of the situation the sheer you know sort of lunacy of decisions and things like that it's apocalypse now every day um, and I ended up collecting his and some of uh, some other co uh, his colleagues um, war memories. And I wanted to turn it into another history book. So we didn't actually say this at the beginning. Hi, everybody. To the end of the podcast. I don't tend to write film books. I write history books. And on this occasion, I've written one about history being portrayed in movies, which is why I get to talk to John, which is a pleasure, by the way. But anyway, I was planning on doing a history book about Vietnam. It didn't work out. So I ended up writing a, a Vietnam novel where mm. pretty much everything in the novel happened to different guys. It's 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 called Echoes and um and it's one of these things where it's it's drama. It's drama. Mm. Uh, it has a beginning, middle and end. Oh, I've done the you know the three 
uh, the three act story arc and all that kind of good stuff because you have to make it work as a book but the the sort of insane things that happened in the book genuinely happened i had eyewitness uh, reporting of this stuff so and and you do get elements of that in i mean going back to platoon uh, again during the filming after the village scene both uh, dale die and oliver stone just walked off they they you know what they had done is not film something they had recreated the a crime scene which both of them had clearly been in at some point and it was just pretty overwhelming for them um and and it, you know and you like with my uncle you can see that this baggage you just carry for the rest of your life whether you like it or not and yeah brian de palma does the same with uh, casualties of war uh, mm, mm. which is another sort of uh, uh michael j fox film yeah, it wasn't. And Sean Penn as well. I, it wasn't very successful when it came out, and I think it destroyed him for a while. I think he really thought he'd met that was his masterpiece. That was the film he he he's very political department. People don't realize this, but he's a really a real political thinker. And uh, I think he he thought this is the best I can do. And if you don't want it, I'm not sure I even want to make movies anymore. And you know, after that, he made like The Untouchables, which he very much considered. You know, I'm doing a studio picture, and I'm not. And I don't necessarily have to put my heart into it. Yeah. Oh, but you know, the the Untouchables is in the book as well, mm. and a great and it's another example of yes, there was Al Capone, yes, there was Prohibition, and that's about all he got right. But is it an amazing film? I, you know, like everybody else, I love the stairwell scene at the end. It's just. Yeah you know, uh, perfect cinema, you know, it never happened. And it certainly didn't ha happen as gloriously as that. But um, I'm one of the few people who think Sean Connery deserves an, deserves an Oscar for that as well. I think oh, he, no, his, I, he was his, great his performance it. is amazing. Enough of this running shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole, you know, that's the Chicago way speak. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, you know, again, like Gladiator, like 300, that was designed to entertain. And it yeah. gets a five out of five stars for me on the entertainment stakes. But please, for the love of God, do not try and learn uh, 1920s American history from uh, from the untouchables. Here's a bit of a philosophical question. I mean, but when, the, when the Untouchables was came out in the late 80s, 80s I want to say. Yeah. 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 The Untouchables had already been a TV series. It had been a comic book. It had, it had, been, it had been treated uh, on film and television extensively. The people themselves who were involved, the characters themselves, had, had entered into the culture as, as icons, Elliot Ness, uh, Al Capone. Is there a point at which films stop being about the the history of what actually happened and sort of become more about the way things are being imagined, the way, you know, the 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 impact that they've had on our culture? And those two things can be sort of interestingly separate things. Look, you make a really valid point, and that's clearly there. I thought it was very weird that uh, I don't know if you've seen the Kevin Costner um, Netflix movie, The Highwayman, which was about Bonnie and Clyde, right, yeah. which which really felt to me like a rebuttal to the 1960s movie Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde, which does get things wrong in right. it and is clearly written from a very specific perception. Again, mythologizing these people, um, you know, the, the gangster era of the 1920s and the cowboy era to America and probably to the rest of the world is a bit like our era of knights in shining armor in the sense that cowboys existed, knights existed, and pretty much everything you've seen about them on in movies is wrong for so many different reasons. Let's not, we don't have time to go into it, but the, but also those gangsters of the twenties, someone like Al Capone, it's a brand name. And 
I, I, I throw out this theory in the book that one of the reasons why history is so popular, my theory is, is because it's an IP that isn't owned by anybody. If I want to do a Batman movie, I got to be in Warner Brothers. But if I want to do a Hitler movie and everybody's heard of Hitler, then I can just do it. Recognizable IP. Yeah, exactly. So so it, so and, and I think, you know, gangsters and all that, all those tropes, I think that's there. But I think that what would be brilliant is somebody doing a movie which sort of starts with the the cliches and just peels them away and peels them away, almost like a, a conversation with the person and say that never happened. Now, there is a moment of that in Chaplin, uh, the the movie with Robert Downey Jr. And, uh, you know, directed by Attenborough. And, you know, he talks about creating the tramp and then the narrator goes, no, it didn't happen like that. And then it shows the hard graft he took to sort of like create the tramp outfit. And... So so there are flickers of that there, but what you just said is it's kind of philosophical, it's thoughtful, and if, I, if, if I'm going to give you $100 million to make a movie, I probably don't want philosophical and thoughtful. I want wham-bam, I, I want hot girls, I want, you know, last moment uh, escapes, and I want blood everywhere, thank you. For, oh, no, sorry, sorry, it's got to be PG-13. I want the hint of blood everywhere. I think it's always funny when there are new cliches as well that come up with this thing. I mean, I was looking at an old film from the 60s, it was a, a film Richard Byrne did, or actually it might even be the 70s, about Tito, and it's called The Battle of... I can't remember the name. It's I think it's only <laughs> it's only av- available in in like sla- a Slavic language. I don't think it's even available in English. It's only available subtitled in English. And in this trailer, and I'm going to act it out, which is going to be perfect for a, an audio podcast. <laughs> Maybe I should describe it. Listen yeah, it. yeah. You just there's a bit where a guy runs uh, and then he's leading the battle, the, the assault up sort of across a field, and his machine gun. He might toss a grip, and then he turns around and he sort of waves his arm like as a like, come on guys and i thought oh that cliche has been so uh, now you wouldn't see that anymore now you wouldn't see the turnaround and waving people forward what you would see now is the sort of marine like two fist pumps and then two fingers sort the of hand gestures the hand yeah. gestures you and you go there or oh, look at that with the fingers to the eyes and and you see the same things and you think oh okay i mean it might be authentic but it's become a cliche now and another new cliche i've noticed is the i tonya style based on real events really you know we're not kidding you know and that sort of um sort of disclaimer at the beginning or the this claim at the beginning which says you know this is so incredible but it's true and those are i, I just I'm, I'm a collector of those kind of tropes yeah no, that's that's a really interesting one as well that the because I, I i put into the into the book talking about the difference between based on a true story mm. and inspired by a true story and it's really to the point it's really to the point where what's the what's the point uh you know with, with based on it means you're, there is no law to it, but you assume that they've got the basic names, the basic events, you know, things are being condensed and moved around to make it actually a happy story, et cetera. And probably there's like three people being amalgamated into just the friend or something. I get it. Okay. But inspired by means, okay. Well, you could say that um, it, it doesn't say this at the beginning, but you could say uh, where Eagles dare is inspired by world war two in the sense that, yeah, Germans attacked people, and that's the only thing that we are going to get right in this particular movie. Um, so uh, it, it's 
it's weird. And and again, uh, sort of on the point of based on and inspired by, there's also this thing of like, what's a war movie? What's um, a period piece, a costume drama? Because if you're going to turn around and say, well, costume drama as people sitting in rooms talking in non, uh, non-contemporary clothing. It's like, well, you just described The Godfather, but nobody would describe The Godfather as a costume drama. And it's like, really costume drama the more i looked into it seems to be acceptable code word for chick flick it's a bunch of girls it's probably historical pride and prejudice yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's historical chick flick and it's like you're not doing pride and prejudice justice because it's wittier and better better written than a whole bunch of lesser gangster films for example and so it, there is this sort of coded inadvertent phrasing that happens and your your point there about these biases i do think that if you go back in the day when people were less cynical about their leaders, you tended, it was easier to have like the 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 king in the car, King Arthur being a classic example. King Arthur was pure and Camelot was pure and we would all buy it in 1955. But in 2023, we're all sitting there going, what's his angle? Is he is he a heroin dealer on the side or something? You know, so we, we, we just won't buy anybody being good uh, anymore, which I, I'm going to say is a, is a healthy attitude to have. But it does mean that suddenly these ideas, as you said, the the Nolan, the, the the big lie type thing becomes its own cliche. And and sometimes people are find, trying to find these conspiracy theories in some pretty straightforward history as well. It's like, okay, that's a cute way of looking at it, but it didn't happen that way for many different reasons. And of course you don't have, I have a very understanding family that after a historical movie, they know dad's going to go on a rant now. (laughs) Um, But you, you know, for everybody else, you do not have the pleasure of sitting there with a guy who sort of knows some stuff about the history going, "Um, well, actually, and, and that that's something that I think Hollywood has to be careful with because the amount of i do not believe that scottish independence was triggered by braveheart but it certainly got a lot of scots very excited about braveheart to the point where they literally did a statue which looked like the mel gibson version of braveheart rather than anything remotely close to what william wallace would have looked like in the late 1200s and i think Hollywood has to be a bit careful about this stuff. Mm. You don't know. If you're playing with somebody else's history, it could be a really emotive bit of history and you could have some unintended consequences from this. So you're, you're playing with fire in these situations. That's a really good point. I really, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's almost like there should be content warning. You know, this is really, uh, you know, if you want to go and read some more about this, <laughs> go and check this out. Because that's the, the point is, you know, 90% of the audience won't be reading any books about this or going to get, they will base all they think of on a subject on the film and they'd be like ah oh, they were really bad those people and they i didn't realize i thought it was this this way or that way but let's let's go there's there's one other film that i, I wanted to go back to which i thought you, sure. you you were when we were talking about sort of how the media a, a film can sort of attack a, another media version of history and that film is unforgiven the uh, clint eastwood film back from 1992 yeah. which um which many people would see as a sort of revisionist I uh, Western. I would argue it, it is kind of half of a revisionist Western, and then it goes back to being a Western Western with a capital W. You know, so uh, the first half, the, well, the first three quarter, or the first eight, 
tenths, let's say, is very, <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very, very precise here. Um, but the minute he takes a drink, it's just we're back in a Clint Eastwood. It could be the uh, High Plains Drifter at that point, office full of dollars. He's just going to go around and shoot everybody, and that's fine. But we're in a generic space, which is different from the rest of the film. That would be my would be my argument, and that's not I, that's not necessarily a criticism either. It's just the way the film shifts. Um, what do you think of Unforgiven? Well, I think it's a stone cold classic and he he had the genius idea of basically saying, I mean, if you like, it's a bit of film history referring to film history and also real history, which, you know, kind of blows your mind in the sense that this is him saying goodbye to all those Western characters, the man with no name, et cetera, that we have known Clint Eastwood for, for the previous 30, 40 years. Um, so, you know, that's an amazing act in its in its own right. And it does get certain things quite accurate. Uh, just one thing to watch out for, everybody, if um, if you're if you're pre 20th century and people are starting firing guns and they're really accurate, just to get super technical for a moment, a musket. The reason why they all stood in lines is because it um, a metal tube, you get a bang, you get a little spherical pellet going down it. It's rattling down that big, long uh, barrel and so it flies off in loads of different directions so that's why you need 50 guys to stand in a straight line because they will hit something maybe uh, if you've got 50 of them firing at the same time um, whereas uh, with modern weapon weapons they are called rifled uh, rifles for a reason because you've got these spirals of grooves in the in the barrel so that when the bullet goes down it doesn't ricochet off the sides and flies off in any different direction it spins so it stays in a straight line so they become more accurate so that's why a modern rifle is far more accurate than something from the 1850s and so once you know that and you know that all western guns had just those metal tubes no rifling in them in like uh, the good the bad and the ugly they're shooting hats off people's heads at like you know 100 yards it's that's just absolutely impossible and what i like in unforgiven is when they start shooting they are close you know there is no mm-hmm. chance for any sort of inaccuracy here because they know how inaccurate their weapons are but you know, one of the other things I, I dug up when doing my research, about 25% of the wild frontier was black. And you do not see that in Unforgiven, and you certainly don't see that in a John Wayne film. Uh, because, of course, after World, uh, after the U.S. Civil War, you had all these uh, African-American men who wanted to make a new life. And the best place to do it, like the white guys, was to just do it on the frontier. You could earn 25%. quite a lot of money. 25%. And you do not see that. And you would still have people complaining about Morgan Freeman being like a token black guy in the movie, whereas mm. in fact he's underrepresenting a black presence in the frontier. Yeah, absolutely. Also, if you want to get technical, uh, the horses were relatively small, so John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, both comfortably over six foot, were way too big to be riding those horses. Uh, uh, you know, nineteenth-century horses. Their feet would have been dragging along the ground, but you don't see that, do you? My God. Yeah, I can see what you mean by you don't want to be too historically accurate at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, people smelling bad teeth, etc. You know, well, the other thing is that uh, well done for Clint Eastwood to being being that old in, let's say, 1870, because, again, life expectancy wasn't what it what, what it is nowadays. Uh, so, I mean, I, 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 I've turned 50. I know you're, you're in your early 50s yourself, John, you know, but I hope, hopefully you'll agree with me. I don't feel 50. 50 no. to me when I was a kid, that's, a, that's old. You know, yeah. you should be sitting in a rocking chair with a pipe. Uh, and it's like, no, I kind of want to still do things. Uh, so, so, you know, but, it, but 50 in 1870, you were riddled with arthritis and worms and everything else, which, again, you just never actually see in the movies. 
But wait a second. I'm just, I want to go back to this thing about the rifling. When it, so that comes in in the that that comes in when? Because I mean, it starts coming in in the 1800s. There, there's a guy called uh, there's a British uh, British engineer called Joseph Whitworth, and he created the legendary Whitworth rifle, which was used. Um, it was used uh, first mainly in the U.S. Civil War because the British Army it, it was so expensive they didn't want to want it, so the, the Americans did it. But the amazing thing about it was that spinning thing he worked <clears> out. So. Uh, literally the bullets were hexagonal. So you could see that if you wanted to change your entire army to hexagonal bullets, that's, that would be quite pr cost prohibitive. So what the Confederates did is they bought Whitworth rifles and used soft lead. So as it went down the barrel, it actually became hexagonal, very clever. But it means that a musket is accurate to about a hundred yards. The Whitworth could be accurate up to a thousand yards. And so that's where you get these sort of legendary sharpshooters of the Confederate army. Now that in no way, this is that was they were clever with guns they were evil slavers terrible i'm not pro-confederacy but this is one of these things where them's the facts sure sure and and in that movie clint eastwood is shooting the hats off people's heads uh, and also cutting the rope of Tuco, and yep. that's during the civil. I mean, so that could be okay. Oh no, no, no! Because I, I, I love this. I watched uh, a uh, an ex U.S. Um, Navy SEAL. I think it was. He was a sniper for the mm. in the U.S. Army and an elite one. And he did. He said, "Look, you know, one of the biggest cliches you see in westerns is that shooting of the of the noose." And yeah. saving it. And he he basically proved, well, it, it, when you think about it, it's quite simple. The rope is quite thick. A bullet is quite small. It's no wider than your finger. So one bullet is not enough to cut the rope. You ba And basically he demonstrated it and he was able to hit the rope, but he goes, the only way you could actually cut it is to hit uh, twice right next to each other. And in his opinion, that was basically impossible. He tried for a whole afternoon with a modern rifle. He was unable to do it. And he goes, you know, it maybe once in a blue moon, you get lucky and, and something like that happens. It's basically impossible. But, you know, thanks to Hollywood magic by just, all they do is they uh, run a little piece of uh, explosive tape in the middle of it and then just detonate it. And every time it cuts free and Tuco lives. Oh, my childhood has been ruined. My childhood has been ruined. I, I <laughs> this is what it's like talking to a historian. Sorry, John. <laughs> no, I love that. I, I I love it because I love the facts and I love to know when something's generic and when something's factual. And there are some times when you can see a filmmaker is really fascinated by the history and is using history in a really interesting way to not be cliched, to escape the cliche, because reality does something weirder than you could ever think of. Um, I remember reading David Simon talking about, uh, I think it was his book on The Corner, which he did before The Wire. And mm -hmm. his um, he was talking about how when people fall down when they're shot, it's a learned response because yes. there's no That's actually need. in Homicide, Life on the Streets, because I've read right. that book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I just love that idea. That's one one I always use uh, regularly when, I, when I'm taught, you know, fun fact. You know, unless you're hit in, the, in a fatal area or the knee, there's no reason for you to fall down because the bullet has passed through you and, and has really no sort of effect on your, uh, you know, you weigh much heavier than it. And uh, why would it throw you backwards? And why would you, you know, fall to the ground? For... Except you've seen it on TV. Yeah, a hundred percent. And also, shotguns don't work that way. But I love a good John Woo movie, so I'll let it pass. So any anytime you, oh, the uh, the other one, and uh, just to really annoy uh, you, the, the listeners, is 
silencers do not work like that. The, you want to talk about a cliche in movies, that little farty noise, they don't sound like that at all. They're actually, what they are, tend to be called is suppressors because you can reduce the sound of one, but you cannot change the fact that the bullet is is breaking the sound barrier. So you get the, that, that noise, you get the explosive charge, uh, and then you get the crack of it coming out the front and you can basically reduce one of those three. Uh, and, and so it's less loud, but it's still something like a, a stereo on full volume uh you know it's it's still loud you know you you couldn't like in the, my favorite silly example of this i like a good john wick movie by the way but uh in in john wick 2 when uh, he and common are sort of like walking along in this crowded way and they're sort of firing the silences everybody's oblivious to it because yeah everyone be running screaming uh but that never happens in any movies with silences that's so good that's such good knowledge listen uh, last last question then what's what's the thing that what's the thing that most annoys you or even it could be a film or it could be a trope that most annoys you that films get wrong and that you uh you know it, it's it's not just like oh well fair enough it's a storytelling trope or whatever but it really drives you mad oh okay uh that that's such a good question because there's so many i i think i'm actually going to go all the way back it's like if you're gonna flash up names and locations and dates get them right or what's the point mm -hmm. it doesn't cost you any money to change the the number on the screen but as soon as it's wrong it's like i i give up then or i i get I, you get this in spy movies a lot it's like london england well as opposed to london canada i'm pretty sure i know where london is you know i and, and the image there is obviously the the famous one so yeah I, I i'm gonna say probably that but if you want a super technical one um it's uh it's the chain mail problem so basically proper chain mail back in the medieval era isn't a very good armor on its own so they had something called a gambeson it was like a woolen padded tunic underneath it shock absorber basically mm. and they had the same thing over their head and you keep seeing in the movies them with the the chainmail onto their flesh, and it's like that. That's going to give you zero protection because if I hit you with anything, that that metal will just bite into your head and it'll bleed everywhere. And of course, they knew that in the medieval era, so they had. But of course, you never see that because it it looks ridiculous. It looks like they're wearing a crash helmet, which is kind of what you would want to wear in a battle. So yes, it's it's incorrect use of armor the, 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 for the technical one. Excellent, brilliant, and 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 conversely, what would be a, a film that you would point out and say this is a great film, and also technically, historically, nails it, even um, not necessarily even with the events, but just how things were in that time. Well, because we've already mentioned a few of them, so same master um, and I, commander, same master and commander, yeah. same master and commander. <laughs> Master and Commander is very, very good. And we haven't mentioned it. So Master and Commander, yes. there you go. You <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. And I, do you know, the one of the bits I love about that is the drummer boy, because it does mm. show you that children were sometimes involved in these things because they were learning a craft in the sea, etc. cetera. And, um, and also the damage you get from the splinters. You know, you don't have to be hit by a cannonball to, to be in serious trouble on, on a ship. So, okay, that that's a great one. And also I'm going to say to this on the record, and John, I'm going to Terrifically apologize. I only had so many movies I could put into the book, and there's no Terence Malick. And I know no. what a huge fan you are of him. I am sorry. I just didn't have the space. It is like I never got to the point where I needed to use one of his movies to make an argument. So I'm sorry. I am very and sorry. Thin Red Line is really accurate. The Thin Red Line is is very good. I have one issue with Thin Red Line, Go but on. I won't. I won't. 
Well, it's the bit when they're sort of they're literally under fire and they're they're contemplating nature. It's like I I've spoken to um I've spoken to veterans and nobody when they're under fire has thought about philosophical questions. It's more a case of let's get the hell out of here. Oh no, I I will dispute that because that's in the James Jones book. There's uh there's there's moments in the James Jones book where people are sort of that thing of having incredibly intense perception that you're you know you're focusing on so and plus the thing about the snake in the grass so many people on Guadalcanal died of the poisonous yep, snakes as that, much as that, the, that, that, I think more true. than than got killed by the bullets the other thing I love about that is they all have yellow hand grenades and that's because there was so the rush to get them to the second world war was such after Pearl Harbor that they only had training hand grenades which were painted yellow because they're dangerous and so you want to be it to be seen but of course in a combat situation wanting to be seen is uh the last thing you want when you're going into an attack so those are so that's my it's your podcast defense. you absolutely uh win on that one but j- just one point there it doesn't matter which battle in in history or which war in history you're always going to get more people dying from disease and the, these very unglamorous unsexy things that don't work well in movies and and yeah uh, uh so it, anytime they show things like uh wounds and injury i mean born on the fourth of july concentrating mm. not on death but on you know, disability and injury and wounds. I I, I always like seeing that because you will get more people wounded, more people with dysentery and unsexy stuff like that than just but being even shot. The, even the Woody Harrelson death in Thin Red Line is is yeah. remarkable. Oh, that's a great one. He just yeah. you know, blows his ass off by by grabbing the the wrong part of the grenade to throw it. Yeah, and he's kind of the first sort of character. proper casualty. Yeah, exactly. So it's anyway right. <laughs> very, very last question, which is, yep. uh, what film book would you recommend for our listeners? Well, you've had so many great, uh, great people on this, and they've said uh, so many great books. So what, what I'm going to do, like my 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 book's a little bit adjacent. I'm going to be a little bit adjacent, and I'm going to recognise Harold Yana's Aftermath, which is basically the story of Germany from 1945 to 1955 because i realized i knew nothing about that and within that yes there's reconstruction but it talks about uh german art german cinema and things like that there was a truman f- film which i had never even heard of before but ac- apparently across the whole of europe the uh, it, there were these rubble movies after world war ii mm. sometimes they were romantic sometimes they were contemplative about the the nature of war etc sometimes they were comedies like uh, passport to pimlico um but yes so uh so harold yana's aftermath is just really interesting about how how art and films can be used for a country to describe what it's just been through and sometimes be used as a, a sort of um uh almost like a psychological crutch now please just help me on this john what is the name of the man who plays goldfinger oh uh the actor hearts hearts the cold hearts Wait a sec. I'm going to be Googling this right away. Okay, you, you you Google that. Well, I'll explain why. Because um, he was an anti-Nazi. He was very much against the Nazis in World War II. Um, but after World War II, he had a healthy career for about five years of playing God. Gert Frobe. <laughs> Absolutely <Gert> <laughs> nothing like what I was saying. Hot Buckhold. Hot Buckhold is in The Magnificent Seven. <laughs> Well, yeah, Gert Frobe spent about five years, five or six years playing the returning German soldier in lots of really well-regarded movies. And yet oh, now right. we just think of him as the plump bad guy in a Bond movie. We've, we, who doesn't who's, doesn't even have his own voice in it. He's uh, he's entirely dubbed. So, you yes, know, that's right. I don't yes. expect you to talk, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> it isn't even him, you know? <laughs> 
oh, I feel so sorry for those European actors who just give give their presences but aren't yeah you know, don't get any yeah, you know, a lot of actors. I mean, in Hollywood, it was quite common to just dub people. I mean, even like there's quite a few famous uh, actresses who tend to get dubbed throughout their careers. You know, especially their singing voice. I mean, one of the famous ones that I think is always lovely is Singing in the Rain, yes, uh, yes. where you see um, where you have that scene where Donna Reed is uh, dubbing over. What's She's behind the curtain, isn't she? Yeah, and then they well, raise the curtain. Exactly. That's that's a later one. Uh, 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 but I'm I'm thinking now. I'm going to have to Google her name as well. Um, <laughs> the actress who plays her nemesis. There you go. I'll, I'll, all this will be cut out, so no no one will. Uh, Debbie Reynolds, sorry, not um, Jean Hagen plays Lena Lamont. Right. Okay. And, and so, what happens is Debbie Reynolds is singing behind the curtain. Uh, uh, Jean, what did I just say? Jean, Jean Kelly. Jean Hagen is. Oh, sorry, Jean Hagen. Sorry. Jean Hagen is is miming at the front, and when the curtain goes up, you see Debbie Reynolds, who's actually singing the song, but she's not. She's dubbed by yes. someone else, <laughs> so she's not singing the song. And the best thing is that earlier on, when there's a dialogue scene where she dubs over Lena Lamont's lines, Debbie Reynolds wasn't very good at it and couldn't do it very well. So you have Jean Hagen dubbing over her own lines, doing oh my both God. the posh version of Lena Lamont and the, you know, I can't stand her. <laughs> uh, she's oh, that's doing an amazing both. bit of that. Thank you for that, John. Oh, that, that's that's brilliant. But again, it's another historical movie that we don't consider historical because it was talking about silent moving to sound at a time when Hollywood was a generation on from that. So it is really interesting what we do and don't think of as actual history film. Unless it's got a king in it or it's like mm. World War Two, we don't tend to think of it as history. And yet history's everywhere or, yeah. you know, or, or all types of things. I'll shut up now. Brilliant. No, don't shut up, but but we can continue talking without the recording because otherwise the listeners will throw things at me. Um, <laughs> but that's brilliant, Jem. Uh, your book, Hollywood and History, What the Movies Get Wrong from the Ancient Greeks to Vietnam, Jem Duduku, pronunciation. Duduchu. Uh, is available when? Um, it's available for pre-order as of recording. It's out early September. Excellent. Brilliant. So as you hear this, you will be able to get pre-order your copy. Uh, thanks so much, Jem. Pleasure. So that was my uh, conversation with Jem. Um, it was it was really interesting. Some of those points, so just fascinating. I love the thing about the silencer, which there's a a new film by David Fincher called The Killer, which uh, actually sort of brings up that point by using subsonic bullets as a way of um, silencing the weaponry in one scene and then sort of in another scene <laughs> totally goes goes back to, to what you would imagine a, a movie about this would do okay so thank you very much for joining me thank you to elliot atkins for the music and thank you dear listener talk to you next week
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.